Turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, we are going to be reading verses uh, 21 through 27, which means we're going to skip three verses, and we'll come back to them next week. These law passages are sometimes hard to, to grapple with as far as putting them into sermons. So we're skipping verses 18, uh, 18, 19, and 20, preaching our text today, and then next week we're going to include those with the rest of the chapter. I don't know if that violates our expository preaching methods, but uh, I just couldn't figure out how to put them all into one sermon. So we're going to go back to them next week. So in Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 27, God's giving Moses the law for Israel. And he says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry out at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wife shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. The law primarily was given uh, for two basic reasons, to protect people, to restrain evil, and to show Israel how to be like God. So when Moses is giving this to Israel, they are a new nation, only a few weeks old, and it was, set, it was shown to them to how to restrain the evil that's in the world and how to know who God is and what God would do in this situation if he were here. You know, what would Jesus do? This is telling Israel, what would God do? That's what God's law is, and that's why we still look at it, because it shows us God's character and how God would interact into a certain culture at a certain time. So in this text, God wanted Israel to provide a safe place for the vulnerable because he has special care for the weak and the needy. Human nature, however, tends towards neglect or oppression of vulnerable people. But God has shown through the Bible and Jesus that he has special focus on the weak, the poor, and the immigrant. I don't choose the text, so I don't know what you saw in the news this week, but it was that's not why I'm preaching this. Though I found that as we preach to a book that's about 3,500 years old, I feel like I'm preaching topical messages based on the news reports. This passage talks about immigrants. It talks about poor people. It talks about broken families. It talks about oppression. It talks about people who are vulnerable because of social and political and economic problems. And it shows how to treat them. So God says, here's the kind of country I want you to be. Speaking to Israel at this time at Mount Sinai. So in the past few months, we've only covered about a day or two in the life of Israel. So they're still at Mount Sinai receiving the law. He said, as you move forward into the land of Canaan, as you become the nation of Israel, 
here's the kind of country you're going to be, both to, to be like God and to show the other nations what God is like. He wanted Israel to be a sanctuary for the vulnerable. And he lists three vulnerable groups. Now, by listing these three groups, he covers every vulnerable group. But these were the historical context. These are the kind of people that were vulnerable in this, in this time period. And historically. Number one, non-citizens. Verse 21 says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. The word stranger there, uh, it means someone who lives in your country who's not a citizen. Maybe the word Bible calls sojourners sometimes, people who, but it's not the idea of passing through. So I, I if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, I, I tweeted out uh, this verse, but I said, you shall neither mistreat a foreigner. I had to go back and delete it. So if you like that and it disappeared, that's why. Because it doesn't mean foreigner. Because foreigners don't always live here. They kind of come and go. This is talking about people who are not citizens who live in the country. So Israel lived among other nations, and some of those people would move to Israel to live there, but they were not citizens. The Bible calls them strangers or sojourners, uh, resident aliens, uh, different ways of putting it. And they're vulnerable. Why? For many reasons. Specifically, they weren't allowed to own land in Israel because the land was the inheritance for the Israelites. So they couldn't own land. They didn't have a tribe or a clan that would back them up in disputes. So often if you got into a legal dispute or a any sort of conflict, your, your village or your tribe or your family would back you up because you all live in the same place. You've been living there for a long time. A Someone who from another country didn't have any of those things. They would speak a different language. They would have different cultural values. All things that would make them stand out and cut them off from the traditional uh, protection of citizenship. They were not treated the same way in court. And so throughout history, this has always been a problem. And so God is saying, when a foreigner lives in your country, don't oppress him. Now, he points it out because it's so easy to do. It's easy to oppress people that are not from where you're from, who don't have the same legal status that you do, who speak a different language or things like that. And he says, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So just as they were foreigners who lived in Egypt, so when foreigners live in, in Israel, then, uh, I'll just wait till you stop crying, it's fine. Uh, my kids are being good right now, so I can just wait a few minutes. No, uh, sometimes I listen to other people's sermons, and when you hear crying children in the background, that's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. So if you're listening to this on tape, we like the sound of crying children, Right? I mean, we don't like it for convenience sake, but we like it for what it represents, which is young people in church. And many of us were crying babies at one point. Uh, okay, so anyway, you shall need a mystery of stranger. And then secondly, so you had non-citizens who lived in the country. Then you had the widows and the fatherless. And we talked about this a little bit, I think, last week. In a patriarchal culture, in a strength-based culture, those who lacked strength were, were vulnerable. So women and children were less able to succeed uh, for legal reasons, for physical reasons, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, it's easy to, to understand how a child would struggle. So when, a, when you oppressed a woman, her husband would come to her aid. Whether you broke in the house or you tried to take something from her or you tried to take her to court, her husband would resist you. But a widow didn't have that. A child without a father, who stands up for the child? 
So it's very easy to oppress children. We have the phrase, it's like taking candy from a baby. It's the easiest thing in the world. Who's going to stop you, the baby, the child? So he says here, uh, you should not afflict any widow or fatherless child. It's because they didn't have the traditional family protections that were needed at this time. They didn't have child protective services or things, or the police or things like that. So they're very vulnerable. And then finally, the poor. He says, uh, if, if you lend money to any of you, uh, any of my people who are poor among you, you should not be like a money, money lender to them. Now, this is interesting because we, in our culture, debt and interest charging is just normal. Yeah. It's normal. You borrow money, you pay interest. So why would he tell them not to charge interest? That doesn't seem fair to someone who's lending money. Understand the culture helps. No one borrowed money back then. They didn't even have money. They had stuff that they would trade. They sometimes used silver. But they didn't have currency like we do. They didn't live in that sort of cash-based society. So you only borrowed money, or you only borrowed things, because you had an emergency. You were poor. Your cow dies, but you have to plow the fields that week. So what do you do? You borrow. And he's saying when someone who is poor, who has no resources, is forced to borrow money from you for an emergency, you don't charge them interest. They're in need. They can't move on without this money. Now, so how would you get your money back? If you're not going to make any money off of it, you would take a pledge. So let's talk about a pledge. In other words, I'll let you use my cow, but I don't want you to keep him, so you give me something of yours to make sure that you bring him back. That happens today, right? So one thing they would borrow is his, his garment, his overcoat, his cloak. Now, a poor person doesn't have a lot to give you, right? He gives you the shirt off his back. And then, but God says, if this poor person who has nothing else gives you his garment, knowing that you'll come, that he'll come back for it, says, when it, the sun goes down, you give it back to him. It's a necessity. In the, in the, now, remember, the law gives specific examples, but it gives principles. So it may not refer to his cloak. It may refer to something, you know, the food he had for that day. God is saying, if they need it, you give it back to them. And if you lose your money because of it, so be it. There was special protection given to poor people in, in need in emergencies. At the expense of the lender. You see, when they lent money to someone in need, they didn't get anything out of it. They didn't get any interest, and they couldn't even withhold things that were necessary to make sure they got the money back. Why not? Because they're a community. And it says, if when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So poor people are vulnerable because there's nothing to fall back on. They can't fall back on their savings. They can't fall back on their resources. They have nothing, so they have to borrow from somebody. And the Bible says that the borrower is servant to the lender. And God is saying, don't make them a slave. Let them borrow. Don't make them suffer. Don't, don't penalize them for it. So those are the three vulnerable groups. But you can see how they cover all vulnerable groups. All those who lack legal power, who lack social power, who lack economic power, those who can be taken advantage of by other people. 
And it's not saying that the people who have those powers are wrong. It's not wrong to be a citizen. It's not wrong to have a family. It's not wrong to not be poor. It's saying if you are not poor, if you have a family, if you are a citizen, here's how you treat those who don't have those things. So God commands them. Now, this section of the law is interesting because you remember before it said, you know, if you, if you hit a guy in the head with a rock and he can walk, you would do what? You would pay for his care and his loss of work. If, if someone's ox gored another ox, what would you do? You'd buy the ox, you'd split. There was penalties involved. There are no penalties for these. What does it say? You afflict if you, uh, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. Or what? Pay money? Nothing. There's no penalty. You shall not afflict any widow. Or what? Now, God says he'll do something, but the, the state would not do anything. There's no legal repercussions. Why not? What does it mean to afflict someone? What does it mean to oppress someone? God is saying, here's the kind of attitude and care you have for people. Not what you should do, but how you should feel. He commands them to care about them. Tony Meredith says, this section of the law encourages a caring attitude towards the vulnerable and disadvantaged. God's people are called not just to obey the laws, but to care for those in need. You see how much higher a standard that is? So what were they commanded to do? How were they commanded to care? So it says, uh, you shall neither mistreat or a stranger nor oppress him. You are not supposed to harass non-citizens. That's what the word means. Don't harass them. How would you harass a non-citizen? Make fun of their accent? Uh, demand documents? I'm just going off things I've seen this week on, on the news. How do you harass people who are not from where you are from? Whether it's you're from the south and you travel to the north, you're from the east and you travel to the west. When you go into a new place that you're not, where you're not from, it's easy for, for people who are there to harass you. Sometimes it can be in fun, but often it's not. You use the power of having lived in a place for a long time against people who have not lived there. God says, don't do that. Don't harass them. Don't mistreat them. He says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Now, when we think afflict, we think sort of like hitting someone. But the word here, at its core, it means humble. It's used of rape victims when they're humbled by it. So it says, don't afflict anyone. Don't humiliate them. Don't make them look bad. Don't demean them. Certainly don't oppress them. But don't even lower their social status because of who they are. Care about how they fit into the community. Don't say things that would diminish their reputation, that would diminish their social standing, that would make them feel bad. Don't say things to vulnerable people that would make them feel bad. You see how, God, you can't prosecute that. You can't go to court and say, they made me feel bad, pay 50 coins. So God doesn't put a punishment here like that. And then talk about poverty, don't penalize poverty. Even though you are sacrificing, he's saying even though you have to sacrifice 
you should treat them that way. You lend them money, don't take interest. I know it's your money. I know they borrowed it, but don't penalize them for being poor. Don't make them pay what, nor what other people, what, what wealthy people would pay. They don't have to pay that. They get special treatment because they're poor. Why? Why do these things? God gives us reasons. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You see the motivation for caring for non-citizens? Yeah. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because you can feel their pain. Yeah. You have empathy because you were there too. So the motivation not to harass non-citizens for Israel was you know what it's like. You can identify with them. You can remember what it's like to be that person. Now don't treat them in a way that you didn't want to be treated. God's saying Israel must treat non-citizens well because they can understand where they came from. They've been there. So the empathy says, I know what you feel like, so I'm not going to make you feel bad. I'm not going to oppress you. Then he says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, that's a pretty high standard, isn't it? And they cry it all to me. I will surely hear their cry, and I will kill you. He says, you oppress a widow, I'll make your wife a widow. You afflict a child, a fatherless child, I'll make your children orphans. That's pretty serious, isn't it? That's a harsh penalty. Now, God's saying, I'll do it because no one can even know that you've afflicted them sometimes. You can cover that up with, with certain things, but I'll know, and I'll visit a wrath upon you that's worse than the government can. What's the judgment? He says, I'll do to you what I did to the Egyptians. How many orphans and, and widows were there in Egypt after the entire army drowned in the Red Sea? Why? Because they oppressed the Israelites, and so God killed them. God is saying to the Israelites, you're no better. If you act like the Egyptians, I'll kill you like the Egyptians. That's the motivation here. But finally, the, the primary motivation is to be like God. Who is God? And how do we be like him? God is saying, I'm going to make you a holy nation. Here's what that looks like. So uh, Tim Keller gave an illustration, which I'll adapt. If I introduce myself to a stranger, I'll say something like, my name is Matthew Lyon. I'm the pastor of Chesapeake Baptist Church in Maryland. I'm other things, but that's primarily how I would want to be known to other people who are not in my circle. What does God say about himself? How does God introduce himself? In Psalm 68, it says, I am a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, God in his holy habitation, God sets the lonely in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But more explicitly, in Exodus 34, we're going to get to this in a few weeks or months, God, Moses says, I want to know who you are. So God comes down and reveals himself to Moses. It's a very terrifying event. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God is saying, here's who I am. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is God speaking. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who God is. He says, Moses, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you the primary way I want to be known. Merciful, gracious. And that's what he says in this text. And it will be that when he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Gracious means I take care of people who can't take care of themselves. Israel, do you want to be like God? Be kind to the weak. Be gracious. That's who God is. Now, we don't live in this country. We don't follow these laws. But we want to be like God, don't we? We want to be goodness like God is. This is what it looks like. Now, it doesn't take much to apply this passage to our modern world. We still have people who are oppressed. We still have vulnerable people. We still have weak people. We still have families that are broken. Are we gracious? Are we kind? Do we represent God well? Well, no, we don't. We have a lack of love for the vulnerable. You see, this isn't about rules, policies, or laws. You know what's great about being a Christian? I don't have to know what the law should be in America. I don't have to take political sides. Nothing in the Bible requires me to identify with a party. Nothing in the Bible tells me what kind of immigration laws we should have. I don't have to have a position or opinion on any of those things. I know we feel like we need to. We need to feel like we have an answer for what we should do on the border, for what we should do with all these laws and policies. No. We don't have to know that. Here's what the Bible's telling us. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Not, here's the rules that should be instituted by the government. No, love your neighbor. We are the church. We are our own kingdom. Kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom of earth. This is talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about God's people. God's people are called to love. That means you can love and not have answers. But what do we do? We do two things. We either hate our neighbor or we're hypocrites. So I was thinking about this. It's easy to go one side or the other. It's easy to sort of attack one group or another. So I try to attack everybody. And when I say attack, I mean convict with the scripture. And I try to include myself in it too. How do we hate our neighbors? How do we violate the principles of God's character here? With non-citizens, with children, with the poor. First of all, we protect and we prioritize our own at the expense of others. Our family, our company, our country. That comes first. And if that means ignoring, diminishing, oppressing, whatever, others, that's the way it has to be, right? we got to take care of our own first. Is that what the Bible says? See, we hate our neighbor not by saying we hate our neighbor, but by only loving our own and dismissing the rest. Who is my neighbor? It's the vulnerable, primarily. Who needs you to love them most? Those who need more help. And so we can be pious and say we're just protecting 
our responsibilities, our family, our nation, which are responsibilities we have. But the Bible is saying, no, that's not your only responsibilities. And by ignoring people for the sake of your people, you're hating them. You're not loving them, you're hating them. Or we use failures, bad decisions, sin as an excuse to marginalize them. Why are they poor? Well, they made dumb decisions, their fault. And now I got to make up for it? They live their life spending all their money, making no plans, and an emergency happens, and I'm supposed to just give them my stuff? They're the ones who broke the law. That's why they're in prison. It's not my fault they can't ever vote again. It's not my fault they can't get a job. It's their own fault. Why'd they come to this country if they didn't want to live here? Should have stayed in their own country. That's what this is talking about. Do you notice it doesn't say any of those things? It doesn't say help the productive non-citizen. Help the poor person who couldn't help that they're poor. It doesn't say anything like that. It only says help them if they have a need, regardless of how they got that need. But we don't want to help people. And so we come up with reasons that we shouldn't have to help them. And it's so easy not to have to help people who put themselves in their own situation. And we can say, well, I didn't do that. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that man. Now I don't have to help him. That's called hate. That's called hating your neighbor. You're, mar- you're dismissing them because of choices. Sure, but what did God do? He says, I'll hear him because I'm gracious. Not because they're wise, not because they're good, not because they're right, but because of God's character. When we dismiss them, even for their own choices, we reject God's character. Third way we hate them is no empathy. Yeah, people make mistakes, they do the wrong thing, and sometimes they need to be punished. But that's not our problem. We're not judges. We're not juries. We're Christians. You're not an ICE agent in Arizona. So who cares? What we do is we like to make them into ideas, groups, categories, illegal aliens, felons, poor. Those aren't people. Those are categories. Empathy says those are people. Let's look in their faces and feel what they're feeling. Why else did God say, don't oppress a stranger. You were strangers in Egypt. You should know what it feels like to be a stranger. In other words, if you don't empathize with your neighbor, you don't love your neighbor. Empathy doesn't mean agree. It means feel what they feel. Do you feel what an undocumented immigrant feels? Do you feel what a felon feels? Do you feel what someone caught in poverty feels? No. Why would you want to? Isn't it easier just to say the poor, the criminal, the foolish, the sinner? Then you can separate your heart from the person. Then you can dehumanize them, you can marginalize them, you can ignore them, and you don't have to love them anymore. God's character doesn't let you do that. Now, 
Maybe that doesn't count. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not hateful. Maybe you're just a hypocrite. I feel like I fall into this category. You draw attention to these problems, but you never act on it. You tweet about it all day, but you never do anything. Everyone knows what you think about the problem, but you never do anything. That's hypocrisy. You don't love your neighbor. I don't love my neighbor just because I put a hashtag on my Facebook post, just because I shared an article about the problems with the criminal justice system. Did I do anything? You sympathize, but you don't sacrifice. You say, man, that's tough. I feel your pain. Yeah, James talks about that. What is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. In other words, I want you to have food. I want you to have protection. I want you to be happy. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Just because you say to someone, I know it's tough to be an undocumented immigrant. Unless you give up something for them, dead faith. It's hypocrisy. That's what he says with the, with the poor. It's not just enough to say to the poor, I won't take advantage of you. What, are the, what do you have to do? That when they borrow money, you don't charge interest. When you take a pledge to protect yourself, you give it back to them. You sacrifice. You give up something to help them. You don't just say, I hope you get helped by somebody. I know it's tough out there. That's hypocrisy. I think many of us fall into that category of sympathizing with the oppressed, but not sacrificing. Maybe you go further. Maybe you do give money. Maybe you do help a little bit. Maybe you sacrifice some of your stuff. But you do it to relieve your guilt and avoid interaction. The homeless person asks you for money. You don't want to get involved with that guy. So you give him some money to make yourself feel better and to make him go away. That's hypocrisy. That's not love. You just use your resources that you don't care that much about to avoid human contact, to avoid relationships. There's no empathy. There's no love. Or maybe you go a step further and you do interact with them. You do help them until they don't do the right thing. You lent them money, and they didn't save any of it. Then they have another emergency. And you're like, look, I helped you once. I'm not going to help you again. I'll help you as long as you do the right thing. And if, you, if, if I lose patience, then what am I supposed to do? Just help you forever? I don't know. How long do you love your kids? Till they obey, or just because they're your kids? How long do you love your family? How long do you love your country? Loving means you don't put boundaries on it. You don't say, I'll love you until I think you're always going to be poor. I'll love you until I realize you're not trying to be a citizen. I'll love you until I realize that it's your fault and you're not trying to change. Then I'm going to stop loving you. That's hypocrisy. It doesn't seem like hypocrisy because it seems like sacrifice. But whatever it is, it's not love. 
the Bible confronts us, calls us to something different. The entire Bible. You see, Exodus is just one part of a big story. So, Israel was supposed to be a sanctuary, show God's love. We do not show God's love, but God shows his love for us. God shows his love for the vulnerable. The Old Testament is one long story of poor, oppressed immigrants. Adam and Eve, native-born citizens of the Garden of Eden. So what? They got exiled. They got deported. They became migrants. They became oppressed. They became poor. They became wanderers. They were immigrants. So what does God do? He helps them. He punishes them for their sin, and then he reaches out to them to bring them back in. Abraham, called to be an immigrant, leave his father's country, travel to who knows where. God says, I'll be with you. Israel, the man Israel, immigrated to Egypt because of poverty. Famine is one of the biggest causes for uh, immigration. When God says, remember that you were strangers in Egypt, he's saying, Egypt took you in when you had needs. What did they bring to Egypt except poverty? But Egypt took them in. We only think of the bad part of Egypt. But for the first part, it was good. They welcomed the men, they welcomed the refugees in, took care of them. But then what happened? Because of their immigrant status, they oppressed them. And God says, I reached down into Egypt and helped the oppressed people. And I brought them out because Egypt wouldn't do it. And then he says, what am I going to do? I'm going to give you a land where you can be citizens. I'll bring you and I'll make you natural-born citizens of Israel. What does Israel do? They break all the laws. God exiles them. They're now immigrants in a foreign country, Babylon. That's the Old Testament. Constant oppression, constant poverty, constant weakness, constant widows and fatherless and death and destruction. And God constantly reaching out and helping, forgiving, restoring. You look at the New Testament. Who is Jesus? See, now this matters unless there's a solution to it. What's the solution? It's another immigrant. Jesus is an immigrant. Do you realize that he is fundamentally an immigrant from heaven to earth? John 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Became flesh and began to dwell among us. He already existed in another country. But he came to our country, came to our world, came to our land where we live, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. How much of your time is spent on law and order? How much of your time is spent thinking about doing the right thing? About telling other people to do the right thing? About authority, about power, about structure? How much of that consumes you? That's Moses. Jesus came full of grace and truth. You see, if your life is consumed by laws and order, you're not living the Christian life. You're living the Old Testament life. 
You're living the law. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him to us. You want to be like God? Be like Jesus. Jesus, who came from heaven, migrated to earth, was a refugee to Egypt as a child. Lived in Egypt as a stranger, as a sojourner, as a refugee. We're not talking about generic people. We're talking about the Son of God. Can you at least empathize with him? Maybe people in this world you can't empathize, but here is Christ himself. Came to earth. And then what happened? The country he came to rejected him. He broke their laws, didn't he? Pharisee says, you're not doing things the way we do things. You're not fitting into our country. And if you don't fit in, we're going to get rid of you. That's what happened. That's not sort of politicizing the Bible, trying to make it fit into this modern narrative about immigration. That's what happened. He came to his own, and his own received him not. They deported him from this world. That's what the cross is. It's, it's his, the country saying, we don't want you here anymore. So they killed him. So when you hate immigrants, you hate Jesus. When you hate the poor, you hate Jesus. When you hate the oppressed, when you don't love the oppressed, you don't love Jesus. Because Jesus was poor, not native-born. He was oppressed. He was weak. Would you have oppressed him? Yes, you would have. And we do. Our sin nailed him to the cross. We would have shouted, crucify him, crucify him. See, that's what being a sinner means. It means rejecting Christ. It means wanting him gone. It means oppressing him. We are the Pharisees. We want to be better than the Pharisees, but by wanting to be better than the Pharisees, we are the Pharisees. Let's not pretend that it's everybody else's problem. So what does Christ do? He says, you are terrible neighbors. You do not love immigrants. You do not love the poor. You do not love the vulnerable. So I'll do it for you. I'll love them for you. I'll die for them. I'll die for you. I'll bear all the weight of oppression. If you feel oppressed, Jesus did too. You see, the story doesn't end there. The story of the immigration of Jesus doesn't end there because what happens? He says, the world oppressed me and kicked me out and I let them, but then I came back and I said, mm, it's my world now. See, Jesus says, you kicked me out once, that pays for the debt, now I'm here to take over, to create a new kingdom. That's what the resurrection is. It's to establish peace and justice for the oppressed. And so what does God call us to do? Well, first he tells us who we are. The book of Ephesians lays out the opposite of all those oppressed people. You see, we are poor. We are weak. We are passing through this life with nowhere to stay, about to be deported into the afterlife. It's not just other people. It's us. We are constantly oppressed by the world. So what does God do? That at that time you're without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant, having no hope 
and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. Isn't that great to have a home that can't be taken away? Ephesians 1.5, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, no longer orphans, no longer fatherless. Ephesians 5, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. There's the hope for the widow, the single, the person in a bad marriage, the oppressed who has no protector. You're now Christ's bride. Ephesians 1.8, that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Are you poor? You struggle to make things pay, make ends meet? Christ fixed that. To see what are the riches of his glory. You see how Christ has undone everything bad in the world through his sacrifice? And now what does he call us to do? To recognize who we identify with. A foreigner who sacrificed all, who was poor and afflicted, yet turns around and gives everything to us. You know why you should love the oppressed? Because you are oppressed. You were oppressed, and someone helped you. That's what Christians are. Christians are immigrants in this world. You realize that, right? Your citizenship is in heaven. You're not from here. You are a resident alien who's just staying here for a little while. So when you meet someone else like that, you should say, I understand what it's like to be somewhere I'm not from. I know what it's like to not fit in. I know what it's like to have people against me. Christ said, they oppressed me, they'll oppress you. We should reach out because of the empathy of having been there. Cole says, love for the resident alien is not based on mere humanitarianism, but on a fellow feeling which comes from a deep personal experience of God's saving grace when in a like situation. We are sojourners and strangers. And so when we meet other people like that, we feel for them. Is that this church? Or do we identify with power? Is that who we feel comfortable with? The powerful. The ones who fit in. The ones who are comfortable. That's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ says when you get to heaven, it'll be great. You're going to fit in. But until then, you live by faith. You look to the hope of the high calling of Jesus Christ. And you reach out to those around you who are in the same place. The church should be the safest place for those who are oppressed. Undocumented immigrants should feel safe here. Criminals should feel safe here. The poor should feel safe here. I'm not talking about giving money to everybody. I'm talking about an environment that loves people. Because we know what it feels like. And because we see what Christ has done for us, and we turn around and do it for others. Let's pray.